0: Open your Bibles to Matthew 26. We'll start in verse 69 and we'll go to 75. Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 to 75 is where we're going to be this morning. John Vandevelde may not be a name that everyone in this room is familiar with, though I think some Perhaps sports fans that have a long memory might remember Jean Vandevelde. Now, don't roll your eyes, it's not another sports analogy. Jean Vandevelde was a pro golfer, is a pro golfer. He has seven pro golf tournament wins. Do you know how much talent it takes to actually win a professional golf tournament? an immense amount of talent i'm told i've never possessed it no. yeah <laughs> some of you know very well that i've never possessed it it takes an immense amount of talent john vandevelt compared to all the golfers who have ever picked up a, glo- a club is in the top 1% of golfers maybe even higher the elite He's won a professional golf tournament, seven of them, three amateur championships. At one point, he was ranked 70th in the world of golfers, remarkably high. There's 69 golfers better than he was in the world. And then 1999 happened. John Vandevelde came to the British Open, which is one of the four major golf tournaments in a year. He led... The whole field by three strokes and he comes upon the 18th tee box which is the last hole he could have played that hole with his putter and won he pulls out his driver and shanks it in the woods trying to be a hero he pulled out the next biggest club and tried with all his might to put it further in the woods Then he tried with all his might, hit it as hard as he can to put it in the water. He ended that hole with a seven and tied for the lead. Went into a playoff and lost the British Open. Had the British Open within his grasp, the jug right there, ready to be held in the trophy celebration. And then he lost it all. But the question that happens when we see one of these mighty ones, one of these sports figures, or whomever they are, fall, we have to ask the question, but then what happened? John Vandeveld never came close to a major tournament again. He kind of faded into oblivion. Is still playing golf somewhere. Actually went on to choke once again at the end of a tournament years later. He faded. We're about to watch in the Scriptures the cataclysmic fall of two disciples, Simon Peter this week and Judas Iscariot we're going to see next week. And as we watch them deal with the consequences, the fallout of their cataclysmic collapse, it leaves us asking the question, but then what happened? And therein, Lies the difference. Let's look at our passage, Matthew 26, 69 to 75. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to him, said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray over this text. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Spirit be among us as we read your Word, as we talk about it, as we think through it. Pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to see what it is that you have to say to us here. That you would apply it to each and every believer in this room. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to, to one of the more famous passages in the Bible, where Simon Peter, who is the spokesman of the disciples, the forefront member of the disciples, denies Jesus three times. And I think, honestly, Peter is really an encouragement to us all. But, but not for the reasons that anyone wants to be an encouragement to anyone. Peter is an encouragement for the same reason it's an encouragement to watch a professional golfer hook a shot off the tea box into the woods. It, it's an—he's an encouragement to us for the same reason it is to a, 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 a woman getting onto her kids in the grocery store is an encouragement to us, right? Well, I mean, we'll be honest, we must be honest—we feel sorry for her, but then we walk away going, "My kids are not the only ones." It's good. I'm not the only one that loses it like that in the middle of God and everyone. We relate to Peter because of his his not-so-stellar moments in the Scriptures, that the Scriptures are unashamed of. They put them out there in front of you. By all accounts, Peter and Mark collaborated to to write the Gospel of Mark, and, and yet it's not ashamed of Peter's shortcomings. Peter's been brash at times. There was the time that he tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Do you remember that? He actually pulled Jesus aside and chastise him. I got on to him. Jesus then called him Satan, and it was really awkward there for a minute. Peter has a big mouth. He once asked Jesus how many times he has to forgive his neighbor. Yeah, yeah, but how many times do I have to forgive him? He basically says a lot of times what we're all thinking. He just calls it out. And so we're grateful for him. Peter has been foretold, he's been told by Jesus, that this was going to happen. Things like what's happening today, it comes as no surprise. He told Peter that he's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And so, Peter has these moments in the Scriptures that make us all go, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. But you have to remember, Peter's also really brave. He walked on water. You ever done that? Peter's the only other human besides Jesus that we know of to walk on water. All the disciples thought he was a ghost. Peter's the one that calls out to him and says, well, if it really is you, command me to come to you. And and he walks on water. Well, he started to sink, but he walked on water. He was there for a minute. He drew his sword to chop off the head of the servant of the high priest when they came to arrest Jesus. Now, was it ill-advised? Sure. But where are the other disciples? I mean, by all accounts, they're gone by that point. But Peter is there with his sword, ready to fight to the death, if necessary. Peter was trusted by Jesus. He was one of the closest allies that Jesus had. One of the so-called inner circle, one of the three, Peter, James, and John. They were brought near. They saw Jesus at his most vulnerable moments. Jesus trusted them. They actually... We're on the Mount of Transfiguration. You realize that? Peter, Peter, saw Moses and Elijah glorified. He saw them. He actually had the boldness to speak when he saw them, but he saw them nonetheless. Peter was there with Jesus in the garden as Jesus is praying right before his arrest. Jesus has seen him Sweat drops as blood. Let's not forget, without the Holy Spirit's work in and through Peter, you and I would not be Christians today. Peter is the leader of the disciples. He's an an elder, one of the first elders in in the church at Jerusalem. Peter preached the first sermon at Pentecost to his peers and to complete and total strangers in boldness. Peter's shadow Healed people that were infirm. By all accounts, Peter was martyred. Legend has it that he was crucified upside down because he saw himself unfit to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Peter is a common, everyday follower of Christ. You look at him as a titan. As this bold proclaimer of the gospel, perhaps as brash and maybe a little outspoken, but this amazing man, and yet he is just like every single Christian. He's an everyday follower of Christ. And him going to his grave as a martyr is him telling you there's nothing special about me. Do you understand? That's the testimony of all the martyrs. Of everyone who's ever died for the name of Christ. They're telling you, there's nothing special about me. So what is the difference between Peter and so many others that would profess to follow Christ, and yet when things get real, they slip away and fade into oblivion? Well, it's certainly not that Peter failed less than everyone else. We know that's not true. We see his failures on display for us in the Scriptures. He's certainly not successful in the eyes of the rest of the world. That's not the reason we look at Peter and go, well, that's the difference right there. The Lord blessed him. The the defeat of the prosperity gospel is right there in the lives of the disciples. New Testament era, they came right after Christ. They believed. You might say, harder than anyone, they saw it all happen. They're doing miracles. Did they die in prosperity? In poverty and persecution they died. Well, that's the defeat of the prosperity gospel right there. They were poor. So it's not that he was blessed. It's not that he has any less of a checkered past than the rest of us. Now, no matter what bad thing you've ever done, no matter what sin you've ever committed, I'm going to bet a couple of things. You've never stood within an eyeshot of Jesus and denied him three times. You've probably also never been called Satan by Jesus. So what is your checkered past compared to his? You've probably also never put Christians to death. What's your checkered past compared to Paul's? What is the difference? We've seen the way that Jesus perfectly navigates his trial. He does that for us so that we so that he might become the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, doing things that we could never do for ourselves. But in this trial, Peter is the one that's going to undergo extreme temptation and he's going to fail spectacularly. We're going to see how we might fare under a trial like this, under the similar circumstances. But I think we'll get a glimpse of what it means, actually, to be a follower of Christ. First, let's look at Peter's progressive denial. Remember, the the situation so far is that Jesus has been arrested uh, following his Passover meal with his disciples. He had a meal with them, then he went out to the garden, and he prayed, Judas, one of his disciples, has gone off to sell him off to the, the authorities and bring the authorities, the arresting party, back to Jesus in the garden where they found him. Judas kissed him to identify him to the rest of the arresting party. And this arresting party, which is made up of servants of the high priest and probably also some temple guards, have put their hands on Jesus and put him under arrest, and they have taken him now to Caiaphas' house, who is the high priest at the time. Caiaphas has a little courtyard outside his house that you can still visit to this day in Jerusalem, but the courtyard is actually quite sizable and very pretty, actually, right near the temple. You can walk right up there, and Jesus is in that courtyard, and there's a little area outside the courtyard where Peter and the rest of them would have been gathered, but the point is they're outdoors in this courtyard behind Caiaphas' house when all of this takes place. Following Jesus up to this courtyard is Peter, and although Matthew doesn't mention it, the other Gospels do, John is also there, or at least someone we think is John is also there. And as we saw last week, John knows the family of the high priest. And so Peter gets stopped at the gate, John gets admitted in, he turns around and goes, oh, Peter is with me, and so he can come in, and so the guard lets Peter in. Now, Peter enters, and presumably John goes into the courtyard to watch the proceedings at a closer distance, while Peter, according to the rest of the Gospels, goes over by a charcoal fire pit and begins to warm his hands. Uh, Presumably there are others around. And so Peter is listening from a distance. And the guard at the gate was actually a servant of the high priest, a, a servant girl. And she is the one who comes over to him, look at verse 69, and she says to him, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And so Peter, doing his best imitation of an American politician, says, I don't know what you mean. Or in American political speak, that depends on what the definition of is is. Now notice that this first challenger, there's some of you that in this room didn't get that, I know that. And that's funny to me. So, uh, <laughs> this first challenger that comes to him, you notice is not threatening at all. It's a, a servant girl, it says. The challenge is also not threatening. Weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? This is just a I meaning. She doesn't accuse him of anything, she doesn't say what she's going to do with that information should he tell her. Probably she's a servant of the high priest, so he might fear why she might be inquiring, but she doesn't seem to give any kind of charge about him. You're part of the insurrection. You're one of those evildoers, aren't you? I'm going to tell. She doesn't do any of that. She just says, you're with the Galilean too, aren't you? It's about the lowest form of investigation that could possibly be brought Peter's way. And what does he do? He feigns ignorance. I don't understand what you mean. No hablo espanol. Notice also that Matthew expects us to understand something about what Peter has just done. That Peter's feigning ignorance is equivalent to a denial of Christ. Peter pretending for one reason or another that he doesn't understand what she's asking is a denial of Jesus. And his denial also, it seems, comes before a group. So she's come up to him at this charcoal fire and she said, I think I know you. Aren't you uh, with Jesus the Galilean? And all the rest of them there are going, Oh, are you? And he says, I don't know what you mean. Now, this has been a warning, as Jeremy read earlier, from the very beginning. There's been a moment in the Gospel of Matthew that has foreshadowed this very event right here in Matthew 10, 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here is Peter denying Christ before men. Then there's the second encounter. And you'll notice that the second encounter grows a little bit, takes a, takes a little bit of a step up. First of all, it's another servant girl, but she doesn't just come over and whisper something to him or say something to him privately that he denies in front of a group. No, this person actually comes over and says to the group, not to Peter, says to the group in verse 72, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So the crowd is beginning to recognize Peter. They're beginning to understand exactly who he is and even accusing him of obviously uh, being with Jesus. And now the accusation is growing. So also does Peter's response have to grow. He's been accused now for the second time. And the four gospel accounts give this accusation, say that this accusation was in front of a much larger group of people. Uh, John says the accusation came from the group. So that probably means that not only did the girl say this man was with Jesus, the Galilean, but all the rest of the group is going, oh, yeah, yeah, I recognize you. I've seen you. I remember you. You were with the group. Matthew and Mark both put it as a servant girl. In Luke, Peter responds to a man. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. So it's obvious that there's a group of mixed gender here in this crowd that's accusing him of being in association with Jesus. He's feeling the pressure of these accusations increasing. And so what does Peter have to do? Well, he has to take his denial up to the next step. His first attempt was just to feign ignorance. And Matthew tells us that he even attempted to remove himself from the crowd. He went to go to a different place. Maybe getting away might help, but the crowd actually comes to him. So the physical evasion tactic doesn't actually work. Not only is ignorance no longer a viable option, but he has to take his denial to the next step where he swears an oath. I swear to you, I do not know the man. Finally, a little while after a little while later, uh, Luke tells us that it's an hour later. The people in the courtyard identify Peter by his accent. He has a northern drawl. The dialect of Aramaic in Galilee, which is in the north where Peter is from, is different than the dialect that's in Jerusalem. And so you can identify a Galilean just by the way that they speak. Incidentally, we also have evidence that they drew out their vows. So even though Peter and the disciples were from the north, they had a southern drawl. It was a long pronounced vowels. So Peter has had enough. And in verse 74, he not only swears this oath, but he curses and swears, it says. So he adds cursing to it. Now, here's where I don't think the ESV does us any good here. In verse 74, it says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. That's what the ESV says. That's what I read at the beginning. But the problem is Matthew and Mark, when they write this down, don't actually include the words on himself. They just say he invoked a curse and swore. In fact, most of the uh, translations like the New American Standard Bible says. Then he began to curse and swear. The normal way of invoking a curse. Like if we're just to think about this. If you're going to invoke a curse, you invoke a curse on someone. That that's what happens. You invoke a curse on someone. Now you could invoke a curse on yourself, which as kids you probably all did. Cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. That's invoking a curse on yourself. But what's required if you're going to explain that the curse that you're invoking is on yourself? You need my, myself, you need those words in there. This curse is toward me. You need a direction there. Matthew and Mark leave open Peter's curse. So what's likely the way we're supposed to read it is not... That Peter is cursing himself, but that he's actually cursing Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark don't say that. They leave it open and leave you to fill in the blanks. But it seems to be the only obvious direction that it's going. It's almost as if Matthew and Mark can't bring themselves to write Peter cursed Jesus. But they leave it open so that you know what's obvious. In the trial of Peter... Perhaps the most helpful thing for us to understand is that denial of Christ is not merely overt swearing that you're not a follower of Jesus. That's the way we tend to think about it, as Jeremy pointed out earlier, stealing my thunder, is that, oh, denying Christ, that's, that's... just when you become an atheist, that's just, you know, overt, militant atheism. That's actually not what we see in the denial of Christ in Peter's trial. Denial of Christ is as simple as soft-pedaling your Christian belief because you know that it's going to be received unfavorably. That's all a denial is. Soft-pedaling the Christian message because you know it's going to be received unfavorably. Now, that's not to say that everywhere you go, you have to preach fire and brimstone, all right? That everywhere you go, to every person you see, you have to tell them they're going to hell if they don't repent. That's not necessarily the case. But deep down, are you ashamed to say that you believe certain truths about the gospel? Are you afraid that in this climate... That certain beliefs that you might have or things that you might say might get you called a bigot. Might perhaps get you fired from your job if you were to say the truth. Might get you ostracized as a student, expelled from the university. We know that we are called to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so there's certainly going to mean that we don't necessarily walk through the gates of the airport in China and say, I have a bag full of Bibles and I'm here to share the gospel with every Christian in this country. Probably not wise. However, there's a line where you go from exercising wisdom to acting out of fear and shame. And this is precisely that that moment where you go from acting out of wisdom and seeking how to navigate this world and all of its political constraints and things like that, where all of a sudden you become motivated by fear. And it's at that moment where you go from being wise as a serpent to doing the will of the serpent. It's difficult, I think, to know how to navigate Precisely that task that we've been given. Many of your jobs are in places that are fierce. That are, no other way to say it, but battlegrounds. That are constantly, you're having to keep your head on a swivel. Especially if if you're at the university. There's lots of Things that you have to do, students you probably know too well, professors you do too. But not just there, you have your workplace as well. All of our workplaces have become places where we have to be very careful about what we say. And it's difficult. And I'm not saying that here's a cut-and-dry answer, here's a black-and-white answer. Honestly, it takes relationship, it takes counsel amongst your Christian brothers and sisters, navigating situations and doing so representing Christ on the one side and also not being foolish on the other side. It's not necessarily just cut and dry, but we should be asking the question, what's motivating my decisions here? Is it fear? Or is it wisdom? So we've seen Peter's progressive denials, but but let's look at Peter's remorse. Peter not only been told that he was going to deny Christ three times, he was even told that there were spiritual realities behind his trial. You understand that? He's told, you're going to do this. But he's also told that there's some spiritual realities in the background working through this trial. Uh, We don't see this in Matthew, we see it actually in Luke. Uh, Jesus tells Peter in Luke, Jesus tells all the disciples in Luke, Simon, Simon, this is in 22, 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all. I'm just going to put it in southern so you can understand. Y'all, all all y'all, all all right, plural. That he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. So all the disciples knew ahead of time that Satan was pursuing them. How fearful is that? That Jesus tells them, Satan's coming after you. Not only that, but he says, I didn't tell him no. He says, I prayed for you that after his sifting is finished, your faith would be restored. He's pursuing them that they might fall into temptation. We know Judas betrays Jesus. Peter is obviously going to deny Jesus, di- denies Jesus three times. But are we really under the impression that all the rest of the disciples are resilient under this pressure? Absolutely not. They all run and flee. They're cowering behind a locked door after the crucifixion. Other than John, they're all gone. None of them are even there at the foot of the cross besides John. Peter denied Jesus because he was given the opportunity. The rest of them weren't following close enough behind to even be given the opportunity. But Jesus, again, remember, warned Peter in the garden in Matthew 26, 40 to 41. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, "'So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation.'" This is after he's told them that Satan's going to sift him like wheat. He's telling him now, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. What might go unnoticed in the evaluation of, of Peter's denial is that he wasn't merely on trial by the servants of the high priest. The prosecuting attorney in the trial of Simon Peter was none other than Satan himself. You realize that? This is frankly where we as Christians, especially Christians in the West, are weak in our approach to temptation. Now some of us live on one ditch or another ditch. One ditch questions whether or not Satan is real at all, and whether or not he has any happenings in our affairs or our temptation or our sin. We doubt that there is really a being out there named Satan. Then another ditch is where we blame every sin or temptation that we have on satanic oppression. Both of them are ditches. Neither one of them are completely true. Let me say to that last group, you don't need Satan or any other spiritually dark force to tempt you to sin. The devil doesn't make you do anything. Anything. He capitalizes on things that you already desire. Remember what James says in James 1:14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed, where is it? By his own desire. Can Satan lure and entice you? Absolutely. Does he always? No. Far more frequently you are lured and enticed by your own desires. Jesus has even told Peter that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter denied Jesus because he desired to save his own life. Ultimately, his desire was to save his own life. Your own desires are leading you and enticing you into sin. Do you realize that? You need to think through that for just a second. Your own desires are leading you and enticing you into sin. So if then you want to have victory over your sin, it can't merely be just putting up impediments to sin. You understand that? You have a desire deep down within to pursue sin. You can't merely put up an impediment to your sin and expect to stay away from your sin. That's not how it works. The porn addict gets rid of the smartphone, the alcoholic throws away the liquor bottle, the gossip maybe gets new friends or stays off Facebook. Those are all good impediments to sin. You have to have those things. But you're not actually changing your desires. The desires are the problem. If you want to, you will climb over those impediments to get to your sin time and time again. We sin because our heart desires what we're choosing. So that means for the Christian, love for Christ and a desire to live in fellowship with Him has to supplant the temptation, the desires for the temptation. That has to take over. You have to actually love more being within the will of God. You have to love more the fellowship that you have with Christ in His Word and through prayer. You have to love more the fellowship that you have within His body. You have to love more the desire to come together and worship. But the good news is that He has given you of His Spirit. And that enables you to actually enjoy coming here. Do you realize that? That's what enables you to come enjoy being here together. That's what enables you to enjoy the reading and teaching and understanding and growing in His Word. It's the Spirit that He's put within you. And if that's not growing and abounding, then all the desires of the flesh are going to supplant the desires for Christ easily. There's two dogs that live within you. The dog of the flesh and the dog of the spirit. The one that survives is the one you feed the most. Plain and simple. So for Christians, if you've fallen into the helpless, sort of woe is me state. Given into my sin. Satan is bringing this and I cannot resist him. He's just too strong for me. He's sifting me like we too, don't you know? Wake up and fight. Christ has given you of his spirit. Employ it, grow. But on the other side, which might be far more of us, struggles to believe that we have a real and yet spiritual enemy who is active in the world today who is an actual entity, a person who desires to make us look like frauds, every single one of us, our entire church to look like frauds, for the taste of Christ in the society around us to be completely absent, all because of you. That's what he desires, to make you frauds in front of the rest of the world. And he has an army of beings who are equally bent on making making Jesus look worthless to the rest of the world through you. The notion that there is a real adversary, the devil, that roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour is certainly not favorable in Western society. It often gets you laughed out of rooms all across the world If you're in that ditch, perhaps you might consider that everyone in Scripture affirms this struggle. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in this present darkness. Consider what the Apostle Paul urges you to do in the passage just before we read the beginning of this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is our wrestle. So Peter is being threshed like wheat right now before everyone. He's being put to the test by these cosmic powers that are over this present darkness. And as soon as he utters this curse for a third time, he says, I don't know the man the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Luke actually tells us that Jesus looked over at Peter when the rooster crowed and made eye contact with him. How chilling. You can imagine that the same Jesus that spent hours with Peter in the garden praying while Peter was sleeping probably spent some of that time in prayer for Peter and his disciples. Perhaps the most gripping part of Jesus telling the disciples that Satan is going to sift them like wheat is when Jesus turns to Peter and says, But I have prayed for you, Peter that your faith may not fail. Now, when we read in Luke that Jesus looked over when the rooster crowed and made eye contact with Peter, I think many of us probably read that as I so frequently have, as an I told you so kind of moment. You didn't believe me, Peter, that you were going to deny me, but there's the rooster and you just denied me for the third time. I told you so. That's possible, but I don't think so. It could also be a grace-filled moment as if Jesus is looking to him and reminding him right now. I'm praying for you, Peter. That your faith will not fail. But this is where the difference in Peter and Judas is seen. We'll see in Judas's story, spoiler alert, he went out and hanged himself. That's not what we see with Peter. With Peter, it says he went out and wept bitterly. I'd venture a guess that during this whole time, Peter didn't even for a moment consider what he was doing. I can almost guarantee you, just because I know my own sin, how we can rationalize it all. It makes perfect sense in the moment, your sin does, doesn't it? and you rationalize it, it makes sense. You see, this, this person needs this information so that they know how to pray. No, they don't. My diet starts tomorrow. Bring on the food. I'm betting that for Peter, all of these denials made perfect, perfect logical sense. I just want them to go away. I just want them to leave me alone. All I'm trying to do is just watch what's gonna to happen to Jesus. And all of those, in the moment, in those brief hour or two, however long he was there, in that time period, all of those rationale, all that rationale made perfect sense to him in his mind. That he didn't even consider for a moment what Jesus had said. It faded into oblivion, obviously, because when the rooster crowed, that's what brought it to mind. These people keep bothering me. Just say whatever it takes to get them to leave me alone. I know I'll invoke a curse on the man if that's what it takes. I don't really believe it. That's not in my heart, actually. I'm just going to say that so that they go away and they, they, they stop. As if he had blinders on to what he's really doing. Until that moment when the alarm sounded. And he woke from his spiritual slumber. The rooster crowed. At which point, the blinders were taken off and he realized what he had done. Do you see that his sin produced sorrow? You're going to see the same. You're going to see a sorrow in Judas, too. He's going to be sorry for what he did, a real sorrow. And he's going to go take his coins and he's going to throw them back, he's going to give the money back. He's actually going to have a sorrow. But it's a different kind of sorrow than the sorrow that Peter is brought to. It's both produced by sin. It's both produced by grief. But what we find out is that there's a godly form of grief and there's a worldly form of grief. And Paul actually points this out in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Perhaps he's even referring to this moment. Who knows? But he says, "...for godly grief produces a repentance." That leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Is that not an apt description of exactly what we're watching here? Godly grief versus worldly grief. Peter's sin brings him to grief, but it's the marker of the child of God that this grief over sin produces repentance that leads to salvation. So, taking into account how Peter has denied Christ. He's gone from feigning ignorance all the way up to cursing. We all fall into the category of Christ deniers. Every single one of us is in that exact same situation from time to time. We're all more quiet than we should be in our workplaces or maybe our neighborhoods with our neighbors. There's lots of conversations and comments that our neighbors make or our friends make or whatever that we just let go by the wayside and we don't actually interject the gospel. We swallow the message of hope that we actually have or at worst, maybe we've gone so far as to even deny outright that you are not a follower of Christ. But the question of coming to Christ is not merely what have you done Do you understand that? It's not merely what have you done in your past. If it was, every single one of us would be omitted. You'd never listen to me, I'd never let you in. We'd never be together as a body if the question was, what have you done in your past? Every single one of us has sinned and Christ is going to the cross to die for that sin that God might look upon you favorably and include you in his family, not on the basis of the good you've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done on your behalf. That he has died for your sins and suffered the wrath of God for you. So all of that is washed away. The question is not what have you done. The question is what comes next. What happens now? What does that grief that your sin has brought you to, what does it actually produce? Does that grief produce a woe-is-me attitude? There's no way He would ever forgive me for this. Is that what it's producing? Because that's not godly grief. That's worldly grief. What is it actually producing? What is the grief that's brought to you over your sin actually producing? We should also ask, are you grieved by your sin? In which case, your sin is producing nothing. If you're not, what is your grief actually producing? Well, if it's producing repentance, if it's a godly form of grief, then what it requires of you is full admittance of the wrong that you've done. You gotta own it. You gotta tell people, you gotta tell your brothers and sisters. So many spouses are struggling in sexual sin and refuse to communicate that to their spouse for fear that it's going to terminate the marriage. It has to be owned. You got to come clean. It'll always be a problem as long as you hide it. Always. You got to come clean. Full admittance of wrong. And then followed by reconciliation. Between you and the Lord, coming back to the Lord in full admittance of where you've sinned and building a relationship with Him, not founded upon lies, but upon a revelation of the truth. Building a relationship with your spouse or loved ones that maybe you've sinned against, not built upon lies, but a foundation of the truth. Now the world is going to tell the John Vandevelds of the world when there's this cataclysmic collapse of an individual. Well, you got to get back up. You fall off the horse, you got to get back on him. You hit it into the woods, you got to pull out the driver on the next hole. You got to get back up. But God's word tells you stay down. That's where repentance is it's in humility. Pride is what brings about the fall, it's humility that is repentance. It's dependence on Him. The weakness that comes from having to confess your sins. The weakness that comes from that. And the dependence upon Christ for reconciliation with God. And the dependence that comes on brothers and sisters in Christ for reconciliation with them. That dependence is the point. I've said that time and time again in the Gospel of Matthew. We come back to it over and over again dependence on Christ for everything is what it means to be included in the kingdom of heaven. Humility and dependence is the point. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness for all of those times in our lives where we deny. Perhaps you've revealed to us in reading this account of Peter how frequently we deny things that we have not considered before, denials. I pray that in your revelation of those things to us, you might also remind us of the gospel. that Christ has died for us. And that we need no longer live in shame, but that we can have a godly grief that produces repentance in life. I pray that you would silence the accuser who continues to point and remind us of the sins that we've committed in our past, sins that we have long confessed, sins that have long been forgiven. And as he continues to point and remind us, I pray that you would also bring the gospel in as a reminder to us that there is therefore now no condemnation those who are in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.